Now, at this time, I'd like to introduce uh, John DeVries, probably who doesn't need an introduction in this area whatsoever, but I think my favorite way of introducing Pastor John DeVries is this, that he's a man sent from God whose name is John. Pastor? Thank you so much, Gene. Good to see so many of you out tonight for what I hope will be just a real life-changing experience. Very fitting that we bow and ask the Lord's blessing and the presence of his Spirit as we begin tonight. Precious Savior, we thank you that you have come to redeem us and that redemption means a lifting up. You never intended to degrade us or to make us walk through the mud. That your presence in us means the highest form of exaltation. We ask tonight that you may liberate us from the lie of the devil, which he has plagued so many of us for so long, that in the coming three hours, our spirits and our emotions may soar as you give us new insight into what salvation is really all about right now. We pray for the special binding of Satan tonight, for the release of your spirit. We ask it in your name. Amen. What I want to share with you tonight began in a very intense personal experience this spring. The state of Washington, while I was on a speaking trip in private devotions one morning as I was kneeling before the Lord, he gave me an insight into who John DeVries is. And to be very honest with you, normally that's turned me off. I, like so many of you, have been my own worst enemy, constantly driving, constantly pushing, constantly wrestling with the discontent with who I am. On that particular morning, God let me see for the first time, I think, in my life what he had seen all the days of my being. And I just literally went bananas. It was fantastic. For as I looked in, I, I saw not failure and not ugliness, but I saw the most beautiful sight that anybody could ever see. It was so fantastic that I sat and wept for a half hour for sheer joy. And in the days that followed that tremendous experience of joy and liberation, that new milestone on what already was a phenomenally exciting life lived with Jesus Christ, I began to share that. There's a man here tonight who was one of the first ones that I shared it with. We talked in my study for an hour and a half. And at the end of the hour and a half, he quietly reached over and opened up his briefcase and took out a portfolio with joy written all over his face, he said, John, this portfolio represents $11,500 that I've spent on counseling and psychiatric care in the last six years in Grand Rapids. What you've just said set me free. He's free. On the way coming in, a lady came up to me and she said, I've just got to talk to you a minute. This first message that I'm giving to you tonight was given in preliminary form last August in Colorville. And she said, I was in that 
message, and she said, I want you to know that I've known the Lord Jesus since I was six years old. She said, I've always been miserable. I've always hated myself. I've always been filled with thoughts even of suicide. She said, that day, when God spoke to me through those concepts, I was set free. My joy has known no bounds since August. I found out who I really am. And that's what this is all about tonight. Who are you? We're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about how much you're worth, and that's a subject of great interest to every American. We're going to talk from then about uh, what do you look like. That'll be the second section, and then the final section is what do you have to offer. What are you going to do? And you'll be able to follow as we move along in your notebooks, and I'll be trying to keep you in touch with where I'm going by putting this up on the screen here tonight as we move along. We're going to begin tonight by talking a little bit about self-worth. And by way of introduction, of course, I want to state what I have in mind when I say the concept of self-worth. What does self-worth mean? Self-worth, basically, is the way I'm going to be using it tonight, means two things. It means, first of all, your personal value, just exactly what it, what it says. How much do you think you're worth? There's that old, uh, that old statement, you know, about the chemicals in the body. I don't know what inflation has done, but we're supposed to be worth $3.98 or something like that. Everybody has to have a feeling of value, a feeling of, of worth. And along with that, in a parallel to it, there's this whole concept of, of uh, personal significance. What's the meaning? What importance do I have? It's not just how valuable am I, but how, how important am I? What significance is there in my life? And I want to point out to you that the whole concept of self-worth is very, very important for four reasons. First of all, your whole emotional structure is based on what you feel about how valuable you are. If you feel that you're very, very valuable, you're probably conceited. If you feel that you're worthless, you're undoubtedly depressed. I sometimes think that the feeling of worthlessness and the feeling of depression always go hand in hand. They're, they're the two sides of the same coin. If you feel that you just don't have any value whatsoever, that you're insignificant, that there's no meaning to your life, I can't imagine that you're just soaring along in the clouds saying, man, it's a great life. Emotions and the sense of self-value always are tied together. The second thing is that emotions and relationships are, or I mean uh, self-value and relationships are always tied together. You know, if you feel worthless, it's going to show itself in an awfully lot of different ways. Maybe you'll be shy. Maybe you'll have an inferiority complex. Maybe you'll be a person who's hostile and who's hating and who's coveting and who's, who's just out to get everything you can. You can't stand Somebody who's got more than you do because you feel so inwardly insignificant. Well, maybe you feel you got it all together. Boy, you really feel you're God's gift to this, that, and the next thing. And you're so conceited that you're an obnoxious bore. But whatever it is, your sense of personal value and significance determines not just your emotions, but your relationships with one another. It also has a profound effect upon your job performance or upon any performance of any task that you undertake. You feel you're not worth anything, obviously you're not going to take out after anything. If you're overly 
conceited, if you've got an inflated impression of your value, you're going to tackle tasks that are just absolutely ridiculous. And finally, and this is one of the reasons why Bibles for India sponsors a seminar like this, your sense of self-value or worth has everything to say about evangelism. For 15 years, I've kind of roamed the world looking to, to, to find the answer to the question, why is it that so many churches in the United States aren't growing? Why is it that so many Christians aren't really telling about Jesus Christ? We've got methods running out of our ears. We've got all kinds of materials. And the simple answer is that we lack motivation. We just simply have not yet discovered that which propels us uncontrollably to tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't believe for one moment that that prayer meeting prior to Pentecost was an evangelism strategy meeting in which those 120 people were laying plans for a door-to-door canvas of the city of Jerusalem. I didn't think they even began to thought or think about it. But something happened to them in the area of motivation that, brother, they couldn't contain it. They had to move out. And that's the missing link in so many churches, both for local evangelism and for world missions. The simple fact that there are so many, many Christians who have yet to make the most fantastic discovery of them all to who you really are in Christ Jesus. Brother, when you get a look at the way God looks at you tonight, I want to tell you, you just simply go sailing right on up into that literal seventh heaven. Well, with that introduction, let's take a look at two things tonight. And each one of these messages, by the way, I'm, with, with, with apologies to you, will be divided into two parts. I don't know what happens in my usual three points, but I, I think I'll make up for it with all of the sub-points and the sub-points underneath that. So there are two parts to this first message, and those two parts are just an analysis of the two ways in which you determine your own personal value. Now, you can determine your personal value either in terms of what you have or in terms of what you are. Let me set the stage by taking you for a few moments to Mount Vernon. Many of you have seen this beautiful, beautiful colonial mansion on the shores of the Potomac River, place George Washington lived at one time. And I want you to try to figure out the value of Mount Vernon. Pretend you're a real estate appraiser, and you're going about the process of putting some kind of price tag on this great museum. Well, what you do is take four things into consideration. You'd look, first of all, at its architecture, and Mount Vernon has to be one of the finest specimens of colonial architecture that you're going to find anywhere in the United States. And so that makes it very valuable. It's a good-looking place, okay? Second, you go inside, and you find in there the bed George slept on, the glasses he wore, the coat he had, the desk he sat at. You got all kinds of valuable antiques. And so you add that, the contents of the place, to the price. Not just the outside, but what's inside. But there are still a couple of other things that you have to take into consideration if you're going to figure out the price of Mount Vernon. The third thing is that you have to take its historical value into consideration. Man, a lot of things happened at Mount Vernon that make it different than any ordinary piece of property. It's just not another tract house out in Jonesville. This is really a tremendous piece of property with historical value. 
And so you take a fourth thing, and that's the fame of the place. What kind of name does it have? Now, you put those four things in, in, in a formula, architecture plus content plus deeds or historical value plus its fame, and that turns out to be the market appraisal of Mount Vernon. Now, I'm not here tonight to make you all real estate appraisers. I've got a real purpose in doing what I've done because what you've just done there with Mount Vernon is exactly the way you have been taught since you were knee-high to that proverbial grasshopper, that's the way you've been taught to determine your own personal value. The same formula that you'd use to determine the price of a piece of property. Your looks, plus your possessions, plus your deeds, plus your name. Let's take a look at each one of those. First of all, take a, take a few moments just to think about looks. Every single person in this auditorium, since you were a tiny child, has, has grown up in an atmosphere in your home and in society that says that if you're beautiful, you're valuable. If you're ugly, you're a cast-off. Your mom started. And you were real tiny telling you the story of the ugly duckling that grew up to be the nice white swan and therefore was valuable. Neglected to tell you about the ugly duckling that grew up to be the ugly duck. What happened to him? My parents tell me that I was born 20 pounds overweight. I don't know whether that's true or not, but they say it's a condition from which I've never recovered, and that's getting increasingly bad. But anyway, I grew up with the name Fat Stuff. Boy, you want something that really helps your sense of self-value. <laughs> you be called Fat Stuff. And you run around, and your dad and mom call you that, and your three brothers call you that, Kids at school call you that? Boy, you really develop a tremendous sense of self-worth, of value. And all of you have your own little problems, don't you? Your nose is too big, you know that. Your ears are too large, and there are other parts of your anatomy that, well, they just ain't all that good, huh? So you've wrestled with that, especially you young people here today. James Dobson puts it so, so succinctly when he says in one of his books that our teenagers are taught that unless they're Marilyn Monroe or Charles Atlas, why, they don't have much value, and all they do is get up in the morning and look in the mirror and see that terminal case is this. They just feel pretty rotten. There was a newspaper article in the state of Wisconsin that described an accident in which three teenage girls were killed. And the reporter said what made that accident especially tragic was that they were so beautiful. Too bad that they weren't ugly, huh? You lose a few more ugly people. Do you know how cruel that is? Be taught that your value depends on your shape and your measurement, your look, the architecture of your house. It is the lie of the devil himself, and I wonder how many young people are in this audience tonight. Just rest. Day after day after day, trying to find some way out. That devastating lie. Because you're not as good looking as the next person. You're not as valuable. Well, the second great lie is that your value depends upon your possessions. How much you have. And so we plunge ourselves into the whole world of material things. Getting the bigger car and the bigger house and the better job. Go out, we say, and 
Make something of yourself. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means the accumulation of fifty to a hundred thousand dollars a year, doesn't it? What an absolute dead end street. Then there's that whole syndrome. The whole syndrome of deeds. How many of you have come here tonight feeling that you're absolutely worthless because you got drunk last week? Because you had sex with the wrong person? You just are groveling because your sense of value comes from what you've done. How many of you are here tonight? You've come into middle age with the great fantasy of what you were going to be and you look back on a life that really you know filled with failure and you don't have near the successes that you ought to have had. And you feel miserable and rotten. You look back at what's happened and you get your value from your profession and from your deeds. You really feel bad. People say, why do kids drink so much? Why do they go out and get plastered or plowed or whatever you call it? The answer is very simple. They find their value in what they do. They say, how can you find value in getting drunk? Oh, that's very easy. My goodness, you get up the next morning with a hangover and you start bragging to your friends about how drunk you were the night before. You get a tremendous negative sense of value out of that. On and on and on goes that old syndrome. I know somebody, before his conversion, was the greatest drunk in his town. He was plastered every night. After his conversion, one of the greatest evangelists that you ever saw absolutely miserable doing both. You know why? Because he was getting his sense of worth either from getting drunk or from doing evangelism. And it doesn't make one bit of difference. You get your sense of worth from what you do, whether it's good or whether it's bad, you are on the wrong track. Boy, you're headed right down the tube for trouble. Then there's that whole area of name. Most of us would like to be a movie star, at least have the fame of a movie star, but we don't. Think, oh, if only I could be so famous, then I'd be happy. And so we put that in. I'm good looking. I've got a lot of money. I've been all over the world. I've got a very famous name. Therefore, I must have value, right? What are the results? The first result is conceit. You're miserable. But you never, I've never met a totally conceited person. Most conceited people are also depressed. They're conceited on the outside and they're depressed on the inside. And that depression is fed by, first of all, coveting. You see, their value comes from how good-looking they are. And they can always find somebody better-looking than they are. Their value comes from how much money they have. They can always find somebody who's got more money than they do. Their value comes from what they've done. There's always somebody who's done more than you've done. So you're locked in coveting. You're just bound up tight in coveting. You're anxious because you know that it's going to be taken away. You know that it's going to slip away from you. You're worried because you can't hang on to it. And ultimately, deep down, when you use this formula for determining how much you're worth, you know that you're meaningless because which one of these four things ever lasts? None of them. My friend, what you're looking at here is a three-letter word. And it's called sin. And most of us have never recognized it. 
Jesus saved me, but after that salvation, as much as I looked at myself with this formula, I lived in sin. And I'm going to explain that more to you as we go along. The Lord really changed me as he allowed me to look inside of myself. When I looked inside of myself that day, I found a whole new way of determining how much I was worth. And the reason I've used Mount Vernon with you tonight is not just because it's a very clear illustration of the formula of determining value, but it's also an illustration of what man is apart from God. I want you to think for a few moments of that picture that's on the opposite page there to which you've just turned, that picture of the White House, which is more valuable, that museum called Mount Vernon or that occupied White House. And, uh, you know, anybody here will know immediately that the White House is more important, right? Mount Vernon doesn't have security guard around it, doesn't have a lot of people watching it, doesn't have people taking care of it in the sense that the White House does. The reason the White House is so much more important than Mount Vernon is because the White House still has its occupants. Old George, I understand, left Mount Vernon 200 years ago, and if you're walking down the hallway and he comes out to see you, you know you're in the wrong place. But if you go to the White House and you walk down the hallway and the President of the United States comes out to see you and shake your hand, you really feel important, don't you? The White House has almost infinite importance because of the one who lives in it. My friend, your value is not to become, not to come from the Mount Vernon formula of what you have and what you look like, but it is to come from your occupant. Every single born-again child of God here in this auditorium tonight is God's White House. The King of Kings has come to live within us. Know you not that you are the temple of God and that God's Spirit lives within you? Galatians 2.20, I was crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Have you ever met your occupant? Have you ever looked at him? Have you ever tried to figure up how much Jesus Christ is worth? You ought to try it sometime because he's the one that gives you value. Not your looks. Not your deeds, not the things you do or what you own. Jesus, who lives in you. That's where you get your value from. How do you feel if the President of the United States decided tonight to move his operations to your house? My goodness, you'd walk around and you'd really be something. Well, he's not going to do that. Because if you're a Christian, it's already occupied. Jesus Christ has come to live to work from there. I don't know whether you ever really looked at yourself. You know, after God let me see who was living in me, he took me back to that glorious first chapter of the Bible and second chapter, third chapter, and I saw it with a whole new insight. God carefully created all of the creation. Took six days, kind of laid it out in a drama until it unfolded on the glorious climax at the end of the sixth day when God presented the world with his mansion. He said, here, this is where I'm going to live. I'm going to work from here. That mansion had a floor plan, the body, an outer courtyard, has a mine, a holy place, and it has an oval office called the 
experience. Let me just put up that diagram that you have in your notebooks and look at it for a moment there. A very, very beautiful thing. It's awfully a lot like the temple or the tabernacle, the body with the outer courtyard around there, and then that mind and the inner peace with the intellect or the chooser, the will or the, or the will, the chooser, the intellect, the thinker, and the emotions, the feeler, and then inside, down here in this spirit, God came and united himself to man's spirit. God took of the dust of the earth and he breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul, right? And God occupied Adam and Eve. Now, God didn't do this with the angels. He didn't do it with the animals. He didn't do it with the trees and with the stars and with the sun and with the moon. There was only one being that God made in his own likeness and that being is called man. And the uniqueness of man is the fact that there is a point in us to which we can be united or joined to God and that is our distinctive value and nothing else. The angels are glorious creatures, but they don't have that touch point with God. The animals are marvels of the mind of God, but they don't have a spirit that's united with God. That's why the psalmist said, in Psalm 8, verse 5, you have made me a little lower than God himself. Better be careful the next time you drag yourself through the mud, my friend. Because you're the White House of God. You're joined to God. How did God come into man? Well, he came into man in two ways. He came into man by that friendship. By, by just coming into man and, 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 and living with that that, that bond of friendship. You have a good friend. You can honestly say that you're, you're spiritually united with that friend. You're, you're in each other. Your personalities blend with one another. You look at how people can really flow through one another. How a couple that has lived together for 20 or 30 years actually even begins to physically resemble each other. Their mannerisms are much the same. So it is in that beautiful friendship and that spiritual union with God that we're, we're brought together, we're tied together with God and God flows into us. What a glorious creature was Adam. And I wonder if we could have seen him, whether we couldn't have looked right in, right through that body and right through that mind, right into the open doors of the Oval Office where God resided. And he flowed out of Adam and Eve. He flowed out of them in such a beautiful way. All of his beauty was shown, all of his love, all of his life, all of his power. It all flowed out of Adam and Eve. And that's what he made you and me to be. His dwelling place. You and I can have such a sense of pride and dignity. I am the dwelling place of Almighty God. Obviously, however, something went wrong, didn't it? The devil came around. He wanted to attack Adam and Eve. He wanted to take over the whole universe. He had a goal. That goal was controlling planet Earth. He had a strategy all worked out. The way in which he would control planet Earth was, of course, by controlling the White House in which God lived, that mansion called man. So all he had to do was get God out of his mansion. And he'd have the whole thing intact. Didn't have to blow anything up. Didn't have to destroy a single thing. Just get the occupant to move out. 
So he figured out a nice little simple three-point program called his tactics. He's never changed that. He's a good salesman. He's the best. He knows when you got something going, man, work it for everything you got and don't fiddle around with success. And his three-point plan that worked so famously for Eve went something like this. Came to Eve in the garden and he said, Eve, how much do you think you're worth? He asked her the question. Ever asked you that question? <laughs> Has he ever come to you and just sat there in the quiet of your mind? said Sam, Jane, John. How much do you think you're worth? Oh, I hate to think of that question. Well, he doesn't uh, stick around and ask, wait for an answer from you because he immediately has a doubt to plant in your mind. He asks the question, how much are you worth? And then he plants the doubt. You must not be worth much, Eve. Why? You don't even have the fruit of the tree of that garden out there. How can you be worth anything if you don't have that fruit? How can, how can you gain it? How can you gather it? How can you have any value at all? And uh, he didn't wait either. He said, Eve, in his third step, Eve, if you're going to have any kind of value, you better go out and you better get that fruit. So that's just exactly what Eve did. She changed her way of looking at herself. She no longer found her value in the fact that God lived in her, but she began to find her value in what she had. He went over to Jesus, and he tried the very same thing when Jesus walked this earth. He came to Jesus in the wilderness after he'd been there for 40 days. And he looked at Jesus and he said to Jesus, uh, how much are you worth? You must not be worth much at all. Why, my goodness, you call yourself the Son of God? And you sit out here starving to death. If you've got any strength at all, you'd have bread. Why don't you turn these stones into bread, Jesus? Now, there's nothing wrong with turning stones into bread, is there? What's wrong with bread? What's sinful about that? In order to have value, Jesus, you've got to have something. You've got to have bread to feed your body. How did Jesus respond? With quiet security, he said, <laughs> Satan, I want to tell you something. My value doesn't come from what I have. It comes from the one who lives in me. Well, Satan wasn't content with that. Excuse me. Satan wasn't content with that at all. And he went on to ask more questions. And he took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. And there on the pinnacle of the temple, he said, uh, I want you to jump down. I want you to Test whether or not you are really in the hands of God. Jesus, how much are you worth? You must not be worth very much if you don't understand, if you don't, if you don't have those promises of God. Jesus said, I, I don't have to have the promises of God because I've got God and I'm not going to test it. And then he took Jesus up onto the mountaintop and 
He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, now, now really, Jesus, you must not be worth much at all. Because look at all the kingdoms that I own. So you want to really be worth something, then you've got to have those kingdoms, Jesus, and here's an easy way. You bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, look, Satan, I don't get my value from what I have. I shall worship God and him alone. You recognize it now? You understand why Paul said that coveting is the root of all sin? I've used another illustration about it. That's the deep sea diver. All of us are a lot like deep sea divers, and we're down under the water. And deep sea diver is a fellow, I'm thinking about those old-fashioned guys. He's got his lifeline hooked up to that generator up above, you know. And uh, he's down there working away, and all of a sudden this, this strange fellow decides that uh, he doesn't need that lifeline anymore. He's got a brand new suit, and he's collecting all kinds of treasure. And after all, when he gets to the top, everybody's going to be saying a lot of great and grand things about him. So he spits his lifeline out because he thinks that he can generate his own life through his nice-looking suit and the treasure he's collecting. That's just exactly how stupid every one of us in this auditorium is because that's the way in which we live. And the result is just like the result for that deep sea diver when you spit your lifeline out and you no longer get your value from God, but you get it from what you've done and what you've had and what you own and how you look. You're dead, man. You're just absolutely wiped right out. This is what you start to look like then. The moment Eve changed, the moment Eve changed, this is what happened. God left. And there was a vacuum set up in the middle of Eve. And instead of having that bubbling fountain of all good there, with all of the arrows flowing out, you'll notice that these arrows start to go in. Look, contents, deeds, name. Man was changed to be a consuming monster, pulling in, just grasping at things, trying to get them in. So that's why the world today is filled with fighting and with coveting and with jealousy and with strife because everybody at the center has that God-shaped vacuum. The Lord left and he has to get, he has to get, he has to get in order to have value. And the devil is just having a heyday as he moves around among every one of them. How much are you worth? You must not be worth much. You don't have good looks. You don't have possessions. You don't have a lot of deeds. You don't have this and you don't have that until we go start raving mad, which is just exactly what he wants to have. The only solution is to change your whole approach to yourself. Well, turn the page over to death in the mansion. When man spit out his lifeline, said that he didn't need to have life pumped down from up above, but he was just ready to generate his own life and his own value through his looks and deeds, he died. Now, what does it mean that he died? Well, I suggest three things. When we say that man died, it doesn't mean that he stopped existing. Mount Vernon still exists, and so dead men still exist. They go on. They just continue. Second, they have value. Mount Vernon has a lot of value. Nothing like the White House, of course. So we have a world filled with old castles, old museums that have tremendous value. Every human being has significant value, even though he's apart from Christ. 
But death means that the occupant moved out. Mount Vernon is a museum, and a museum is a dead place. It's a place that's a replica of what, what once was. It is a replica of life and power, but nothing's happening there. I ask you tonight, is that what you're like? Like that museum? Oh, you may be good looking. Mount Vernon is. And you may have a million bucks tonight. Mount Vernon's worth a lot more than that. And you may have talked up an awful lot of deeds, good and bad, and people may be talking about you all over, but you know why you're still restless, my friend? It's either because you still are a museum or you've never recognized to begin with what Jesus is. You're still operating on the old program. So death came into man. You can just look quickly at that diagram. I might explain that to you. It's on that same page. Total instant death means that God left. That old exterior frame out there started to decay. Death seeped out, just like it does in those old castles in England. The king leaves, you know, the thing kind of goes to rot. Every single body here in this auditorium tonight is in the process of dying. We're not alive. We're in the process of dying. That death that, that afflicted us seeps out into our mind and our intellect and our will and our emotions all get a little foggier. and They start to go to pieces after a while until gradually the whole thing winds up in the grave. Well, God looked at this, this whole situation. He said, hey, I want my mansion back. But he said, I can't come in it and live in it that way. I've got to do a little bit of cleansing, quite a bit of house cleaning, as a matter of fact. And there was only one way in which God could get that mansion clean. He had to do two things. They're two simple things. He had to make restitution and punishment. Now, those are two legal terms, but everybody can understand those quite simply. If you sell, steal a car and you want to be made right, you've got to do two things. You've got to bring the car back and you've got to pay the fine for stealing it in the first place. So the only way in which God could restore that museum back to being a mansion was to make certain that those two things were done. That the life that we stole, that life of love, was restored. And that the punishment that we deserve was actually accomplished. And so he devised a plan. Jesus Christ came, made provision for us. You know, most of my life, I kind of thought Jesus did that for me. And that was part of the great change that came into my life when I understood that there was something vastly more than Jesus dying in my place. And I'll never forget Good Friday almost a year ago when in our church someone sang, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And all of a sudden I understood with new impact that yes, indeed, didn't just do it for me, but he did it with me. It's something like this. If you're a murderer and you're condemned to the electric chair, a man can come and take your place. And you can stand outside that room and look in there and see him die for you and you walk away the same creature, but your sentence has been commuted. I don't believe that's the way Christ did it for me or for you. You know where I think I was? I was sitting on his lap. I died 
Christ. That's one of the greatest revelations God has ever given me. Jesus didn't just do it for me, outside of me. But when Christ came into me and fused His Spirit to mine, whenever that was when I was a little child, perhaps it's been from even before my birth, I don't know when that occurred. I only know that I've grown up loving Him and knowing Him. But what I never understood was that I really was with Him on that cross. He didn't just do that for me. I was punished there with Him. I was crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. May the Spirit of God drive that truth home to you tonight. To know that you are not just a condemned criminal for whom somebody went to prison and you still are the same, but you went to prison with that somebody. You walked this earth with that somebody. His perfect life is yours. His full death is yours. His resurrection is ours. His position in the heavenly places today is ours. Well, what does all of this mean? And if you'll turn to this last section quickly. God moves in now, point E. God can come back into us simply because He's cleaned us up. You said some very, very beautiful, beautiful passages, and I'm going to be speaking about them in much more detail in the next message. I want to leave them with you just to think about for the next 15 minutes. You've read John 1:13 many, many times. I want you to read it again now. It says that to all who believed him in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. That means, my friend, that there is within you today something that's born of God, something that God has created, something that God has made. Jesus said that in John 3, 3, except a man be born again from God, from the Spirit. Paul speaks that so beautifully in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Galatians 2.20, I was crucified with Christ. I die. Then that glorious, glorious passage that we're going to look at in some detail, 1 John 3, verse 9. It's always giving you a lot of problems if you know your Bible. That says this. 1 John 3, verse 9. No one who's born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him and he cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. Now, I'll explain that to you. And I don't want you to run ahead. And I'm not going to teach tonight that you're sinless, so don't get all shook up and don't get all worried. I know myself far too well for that. The point I want to make tonight is that when God moves in, your value comes from Him. And you have a problem right now, and that problem is that your old body of sin in which that new person resides still wants to get your value from your looks and from your possessions and from your deeds and from your name. And your new spirit says, I want to get my value from God. 
What you really look like is that final diagram right now where you have within yourself a new spirit. Christ is joined to you and this is a totally new creation. And out of that, there is flowing God's beauty and God's power and God's love and God's life. And so you've got that bubbling fountain re-established within you flowing out. Then on the outside, here in that body of sin, you have dragged in yet names and looks and deeds and possessions. One author suggests it's a lot like a factory that got new management (laughs) and the word hasn't yet reached the outside. But down inside of you, God has come back to live and to dwell. My friend, when you look inside of you, you see God there pretty tremendous sight. I want to close this section with a beautiful little story told to me by some Lutherans out in New York when I was teaching this for the first time. They said the story goes like this, that a stranger came to visit Martin Luther one day. He knocked at the door and Luther answered the door and the stranger didn't recognize the good doctor and he said, tell me, friend, does Dr. Luther live here? And Luther thought for a moment and he said, "Uh, no, No, I'm sorry to have to tell you that Dr. Luther died. But he said, Christ lives here now. If you want to talk to him, come on in. Dare say that about yourself? Born again? I want to tell you, Christ lives in you. He wants to shine out through you. In the next section, we're going to talk about just how incredibly beautiful you and I really are.